to the My Curious Colleague podcast with your host, me, Denise Venieri. I am a 20-year practitioner in the consumer engagement space, having worked for two large CPG organizations. My intent is to celebrate and share best practices with particular focus around the specialist and analyst roles and to give back to this great community because CPGCX rocks. Welcome, welcome to the My Curious Colleague podcast. I am your host, Denise Finieri, and for those that don't know my origin story, well, here it is. With my son off to college, I decided to begin speaking and writing about my various consumer engagement roles. This led to starting a YouTube channel last year and now pivoting to podcasting. In this episode, episode three, my guest is my very curious colleague, I should say, Marie Schubin. Marie has been a leader and welcome fixture within the consumer care community for the past 25 plus years. She has worked for two CPG companies, the Dial Corporation and more recently, E&J Gallo Winery, a senior director of consumer and product Insights. While Marie has officially retired or attempted to retire a few years ago, she has kind of kept her, kept her hand in supporting SOCAP, the Society of Consumer Affairs Professionals, supporting some events, and most recently jumping in to serve as interim president and CEO at SOCAP. Formerly, Marie also served as chairperson of SOCAP and most notably spearheaded the groundbreaking CPG data reporting workshop which is where I got to know and meet Marie. So hello, Marie. So happy you're here on the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about our passion, data reporting. What's fascinating to me about your long and stellar career is that you've really been a witness to this evolution of emerging channels in consumer care as they came on the scene, you know, including that disruptive, and I have that in air quotes, email channel in the mid to late 90s. Can you share a little bit about those early days, you know, of the toll-free numbers coming on and how the email channel impacted everybody's world back then? Well, compared to social media today, it seems like it was easy. But back then, it was shocking. The email channels opened up because people started using email at work, and then they thought, oh, what a good way to communicate with the public at large. And um, for many companies, they just put an email address out there on their website, and they didn't really have any provisions for responding to it. So we got this giant onslaught of communications. And what was, what was interesting about it was, one, first, people were shocked that, pe- that consumers would communicate via email. And secondly, um, there was so much data in and it was all in free-flowing text. You know, people would would write an email just the way they would talk to you. And so they'd write out a lot of details and extraneous information. Um, But sometimes that information didn't help us. So we had a lot of reading to do. And then we would end up having to email back to the consumer to get information that was more relevant to solving their problem which, of course, eventually led to the use of contact us forms in, instead of free-flowing email. How did you all survive? And I'm in, again, in air quotes, you know, all this email channel mayhem. How did you get through it all? 
frankly, it was crazy because there was so much email coming in. A couple things happened. One is some marketing folks were reluctant to put any email address out on their website. They didn't think that people would contact us that way. And once they saw one or two brands doing it, then, of course, everybody wanted to do it all at the same time. So we got this tsunami of addresses going out there. And then secondly, if the consumer was not already looking for it on the email, <clears throat> the other thing that had to happen was it had to go onto the package graphics in order for consumers to know that there was a branded website, that there was a way to con get in contact with the brands. And so that took um, quite a couple of years for brands to convert their, their um, package labels to contain email addresses or to contain website addresses and then get those things directed over to consumer affairs that where, where the consumer could get um, help. A lot of times it was still get the information and then we would call the consumer back and have to resolve on the phone. But over time, it evolved to be a much more um, detailed channel for communicating with consumers and consumers adopted it readily as it emerged in the workplace People, you know, they're they're at work as workers, but they're also at home and they want to use the same kinds of tools. So as they got more comfortable with it in the workplace, it became more comfortable in, in the per, in the consumer affairs channel as well. And we just had to schedule for it. The hard part was not knowing what was going to come in on any day. With telephones, we had a couple of years of um, data that would to told us when calls would come, time of day, how long consumers would stay on the phone. The thing about email is that it could happen at any time, day or night. Consumers would often write to you after hours <laughs> when they got home from work and discovered a problem. <clears throat> so then the next day, the the office would be besieged with all of these emails that had come in through the night. So we had quite a, a, a mess to work through every morning. Hmm. Interesting, uh, interesting times. And you, you mentioned about the packaging graphics, having to add the website. And I know that that had to be, be a challenge because that website, not the website, excuse me, that packaging real estate is so precious. You know, they yes. really, marketers really want to use that to explain the product and the romance language and, and all that other information. So that, that uh, must've been a little bit challenging on their side. Some brands found it, um, challenging because it didn't fit the culture of their brand to have something as corporate <clears throat> as an email address or a, a website address felt very um, company like as opposed to being consumer friendly language. So certain brands were very challenged by doing hmm. that. Yeah, right. I can imagine. I can imagine. I don't think I've seen anything to that extent. I think I believe I just started right when email had been adopted pretty readily. And it wasn't until, and you mentioned it, social media came on that people were like, you know, wondering how are we going to, how are we going to do this? Um, so that, that is interesting to kind of see that, that trajectory and that adoption. You know, one of the that. good things about email though, is that we had good basics. We had good basics from previous correspondence. Most consumer affairs departments were letter writers originally. And those letters then became the basis for scripts that were used when toll-free numbers came out. And when um, the agents would be talking to the consumer on the phone, they had prompts because they had the answers for all of those things. So with those two things already developed, um, the challenge was to craft those two um, verbal and formal written responses into something that was a little bit more um, 
tight and a shorter response for an email because consumers are not going to read a long, lengthy, formal letter. We had to really look at how to trans transfer that language of a formal letter into the more informal chat of, a, of an email. Right. So even though you had those two channels and you could leverage that type of scripting, it still sounds like it's a quite a work effort. That needed to get done, but it needed it to was. it needed to get done to meet with the uh, consumer behavior that was changing all the time. So I think we're going to switch gears just a little bit and and move into a rapid fire round of questions. Uh, really, what okay. I want to do here, Marie, is is to just um, level set everyone first on your organization and then some of the technology because I I think it helps and will help put our discussion into a little bit better context. So let's jump into it. Are you ready? Sure. Fire away, girl. Okay. So let's think about your Gallo winery days. Um, which function did you report to? At Gallo, I was fortunate to report to a, a uniquely situated department called the Department of Consumer and Product Insights. And that department was charged with all aspects of consumer insights, including some research and um, sensory um, tasting panels, all of those things. So it was unique in my experience to be under that. A lot of it was focused on innovation and product improvement. Was that the only um, function that you report to during your time there or did they move you around like I often hear? At, at Gallo, it was always in Consumer and Product Insights, although today they have moved that to marketing. So the current Consumer Relations Department reports into marketing. In some of my past roles, like at Dial, for example, we reported into customer service, and customer service was divided into two parts, the B2B account management side as well as the B2C consumer side. And then we had a dotted line reporting over to legal and risk and so forth. About number of contacts a year, approximately how many did you support over at uh, Gallo Winery? Well, at Gallo, when I started out in 2004, I took over a very small department. We only had two toll-free numbers. One was on the products that were labeled Gallo, and one was a recently launched product, um, Peter Vella Box Wine. And um, it was very small. We took about 15,000 um, calls a year. And it was primarily calls with some email and paper mail. Um, over the 15 years that I was there, that ramped up to about 200,000 contacts a year um, and 150 toll-free numbers and brands. So it's quite a big, a big transition over time. Was your team insourced or outsourced? My team at Gallo was insourced, and it was started um, in the legal department. It started because the legal admin was responding to consumers who were reaching out to our headquarters office and asking questions about um, issues that they had with the products and wanting their money back. And the only company, the only part of the company that could actually respond to them legally was the legal department. So it launched through there, which is very similar to how a lot of other CPG companies got their start. Same thing happened when I was at Dial. It started out by um, being part of the legal department and then evolved into its own um, entity. How many uh, brand ambassadors, or that's what um, I call them, were call reps who would mostly care for your consumers were on your team? At, at Gallo, we started with just three 
in three domestic and one um, international. We had products in other countries and we didn't have facility to handle them. So we had one that responded internationally. Um, and then eventually they ramped up to seven. Um, under my watch, it was up to seven agents. And then we had a, a separate team that we launched for social media. Got it. How many other folks were on your team? So I guess I'll call them non-call call reps. Non-call. We had... Um, a manager, obviously, it evolved from a supervisor role into a manager role during the time that I was there. And then we also had a systems administrator to support the back office functions of fulfillment um, administrator and also a data reporting analyst. Got it. How about uh, systems now? Uh, CRM system, which one did you use? At Gallo, we used Astute ePower Center Solutions, which is now called Astute Consumer Center. Um, but at Dial, I used Wilkie Thornton CRS and um, was fortunate to have had both systems because when I um, when I compare them and when I look at what's available from between one and the other or when someone new comes to my team or we acquired a new product, I already understood how the data was being collected on both sides. Perfect. And on the uh, social media side, which technology did you use? We used Astute Social Media, and one of the biggest reasons is because um, Astute and um, CRS were both designed for consumer contacts, which is a little bit different than client contacts. With a client contact, you're typically building a longstanding relationship. You're calling them back and forth and so forth. With consumer care, very often you're only having one contact with a consumer who has a specific question or praise, or, or, or problem, and you resolve it then and there in your first call, which we call in our business, of course, you know, first call resolution. Um, so with those two systems, they were both designed for easy access for the agents, ability to get to data, ability to take the information quickly without having the customer repeat themselves. And so those systems allowed us to um, respond and tally all of our calls and, and emails and paper mail and everything very quickly. With social media, one of our key things was that we wanted to be able to tally and, and collect the social media commentary in the same format. Since they could be integrated together, it made sense to stay with Astute um, as our social media platform as well and use the tools that the agents were already familiar with. It made it very easy for agents to work with them it allowed us to gather the data and report it in a similar fashion. Um, although there were a good many tools on the social side, um, being able to, to pick the same coding and the same reasons and the same product UPCs and all those things really was a boon for the agent. I almost forgot about reporting technology. Um, was it just reporting or data analysis out of your CRM system or was there other tools that you supplemented with? In, in the consumer affairs side, both at Dial and at Gallo, we used um, the tools that were already in the platform. So at Dial, we used the CRS tools, which were designed for CPG companies. Um, but then we exported a lot over to Excel to do pretty graphics and that kind of thing. At, at Gallo, we did the same thing. Astute has a very flexible, in fact, is what was one of my favorite easy features of that platform is to use their tools because they're so flexible I designed a lot of custom work for that um, and a custom reporting for that, which allowed us to automate reports, get, you know, the data every night, every week, every day, whatever the, the um, recipients wanted. 
It allowed us to automatically um, send some raw data over to our quality department. And then our, what our quality department analyst did is she would embed our, our consumer feedback data with their plant production data. So we used mostly, we used the tools and Excel, and she would add in um, Tableau to her piece. Got it. Well, good job. You made it through the rapid fire round of round of questions. That wasn't too bad, was it? Well, that wasn't too bad at all. Um, and as I had mentioned, you had spearheaded the data reporting workshop over at SOCAP. So let's let's talk a little bit about our data analyst role from two perspectives. One would you know, from a planning career planning perspective, excuse me, both from someone thinking about, you know, contemplating if the analyst role could be right for them as a career choice. And then also as a leader like yourself, crafting, say, a, you know, a job description for the analyst responsibility. So um, well, let's start with your point of view as a leader, crafting the team with these roles. How was your team set up? And uh, perhaps you could even touch on ways a leader could set up their team's responsibilities you know, by division, et cetera. Sure. Well, let me back up a few years. When I first um, became consumer affairs manager for Dial, I had a team of um, agents that were frontline representatives taking the inbound call and then specialists. And the specialists took escalated calls and they were responsible for a division of product lines. So some for soap, some for detergent, some for dishwashing liquid, et cetera, household cleaners and so forth. And those people um, did sort of their own individualized reporting. But we soon realized that in order to be able to look at the breadth of a product line that we had, we needed to really consolidate that into better tools. And that's when we created the position of data analyst. And the data analyst took all the data together and then she was able to, to um, one, consolidate all of our contact information, but two, also contrast and compare products across product lines. So if we had an issue on a liquid soap line, we could also look to see if we had a similar issue on a dishwashing liquid or on a pro or on a liquid laundry detergent. Um, so it helped us to co coalesce into one position. Um, and carrying that forward, that's what I use for probably the majority of my time in Dial was one data analyst. And then going to, dot, to Gallo, um, funny, I walked into a very similar situation. Each of the four agents was responsible for one of the key product lines. And since that was an emerging business for them and they didn't have that many toll-free numbers, it was pretty easy for agents to do their own reporting. But as we got more toll-free numbers out there and products launched and the volume picked up very quickly, we went from 15,000 to 50,000 in, in like one year. Um, it was much more than an agent could do to manage that. So of course we added the data reporting analyst. And for the data reporting analyst, that was a role that I have, I strongly feel is an integral part of the agent experience as well. So I have a bias that I think that the data reporting analyst should know what it feels like to be on that phone. And so all of the times that I have done this, my data reporting analysts have always gone through agent training, spent time on the phone so that they could hear the consumer, they could understand nuances in the way they explain things. They could understand that consumers might use, um, one, one set of consumers might use one word well, to describe a situation where a different set of consumers might use a different word. So for the analyst to have that insight makes them better at looking at the feedback when they get it. 
And if you don't mind, I'll just give you a small example about that. Um, when we talk about taste complaints, taste complaints um, can be described in many ways for wine. Some people call it vinegary. Some people call it sour. Some people call it bitter. Some people call it rancid. It just depends on what their own um, vernacular is. So with an analyst looking at a taste complaint, they would really need to look at all four of those terms, not just one. And if they hadn't had the experience of being out there on the phones, hearing the way the same situation is described in different terms, they may not know to look for that and to consolidate that information. <clears throat> so interesting. How long would they be in the training on, as, in, as a rep? Um, approximately? Dial and Gallo are training... <clears throat> excuse me, our training program was about um, four to six weeks, depending on the breadth of the product line. When I first started training at Gallo, we didn't have a very deep product line, but over time it became six weeks. And the first week was primarily just learning the systems that they were going to use and the resource tools that they had at their at their disposal and how the functionality worked. What, what does a coupon look like? All of the basics. Um, once we got p- past that first week, then... Um, we would start in on product lines and the same way I taught it when I was doing it for dial is product lines that are similar um, food, bar soaps, powder soaps, et cetera, similar carryover to the way I taught it at, at Gallo. And that is, you know, wine, wine coolers, wine beverages, um, box wine, spirits, et cetera. They all break themselves out into some natural similarities. So it's not so much about the brand as it is about the consumer experience with the product that you're making. <clears throat> and having the agent, having the agents and the um, analyst and, and the systems administrator and everyone um, go through that training, they understand that their whole job is distilling consumer feedback into something that's meaningful within the company. So by everyone going through the same training and even the ongoing, not just first-timer training, but the ongoing perpetual training sessions that we would have every month, that kept everybody abreast of things. And when a question would come up about, well, here's a problem, particularly with a new thing, how do we describe this problem? They, would, they could coalesce around a way to describe the problem and create a reason code for it, a reason code definition. Then we could train quality as to how to interpret that piece, et cetera. There's a lot of training that goes on between um, consumer feedback and the quality departments that use them, the insights departments that use them, product innovation and developers that use them. So there's there's a lot of coalescing around what does this mean and how do we use it? Got it. Got it. Um, Let's keep with the career um, perspective, but now from an employee's point of view, uh, someone who, um, you know, is trying to figure out if consumer care is right for them and how can they leverage that experience? Did we do that one yet? <laughs> no, we didn't. I, what I would say is a, a consumer affairs or consumer services, whatever your organization is called, I think that data analyst role is one, not a beginning role. It's not a, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not a role where you just graduate right out of out of college and come into that data because you really need to learn a bit about the product and you need to learn about how your audience who your audiences are and how they're going to use the information. Um, so I like to hire people that have been going to college at the same time as they were working in the consumer affairs department. It was always a potential to move up in my department from that. So we had a lot of college students 
And while they were getting their degrees, that was a it was a good fit. Then they could roll into consumer data analysts because they they've already learned the consumer side of it, the feedback side, the product lines, and so forth. And if they were made mastering um, statistics or taking um, financial analyticals or any of that kind of curriculum, it was a perfect perfect step up for them for a promotion. Um, my analysts have been. Um, statisticians. I've had a, I've had two people that with, were in majoring in statistics. I had another person who was a finance um, uh, analyst. That was his, his background was in finance. And he came into consumer because he thought it would be a good place to learn the products and the product line and understand the implications of consumer feedback to the finances. Um, marketing data analysts all the time because they're used to looking at, you know, shelf space and turns and all of those other kinds of things. So there's a lot of, a lot of avenues into the consumer data analyst place. I was just going to say the one thing about um, the data analyst is that the data analyst is looking at a lot of information from it, especially in today where there's eight or 10 channels, they're looking at a lot of different, um, a lot of different pieces of data coming at them in different ways. So today, that data analyst it has a lot of opportunity to use other tools. So I think they have to be a little bit technically savvy as well. There's a lot of tools out there that are interpreting, especially like the voice data and the written word data that can be managed by the analyst. So the analyst needs to be technically savvy and understand what those tools are, learn to master those tools. It's not just a bunch of numbers and tick marks on a spreadsheet anymore. Now it's now it's nuance and voice tone and all of those things. And that's a, that's a new, um, uh, what I call it, not asset, but a, a, a new um, requirement that today's data analyst needs. Yeah, which I think uh, kind of answers my next question, which is going to be what you know what makes a successful data analyst. So it sounds like it's somebody who's got a penchant for the numbers, has the interest in statistical analysis. Um, that would be one thing I'm hearing from you. Is there is there anything yes. else that you can think of? I, I think um, in the old days, uh, I say old days, 10 years ago, a decade before <laughs> when we didn't have social media and we didn't have. Ch and it, it, I, I would say you're looking at crunching numbers and you're looking at trends based on simple graphs. Today, you're looking at. Um, data that's coming at you, like I said, from all kinds of sources, nuances in here, voice tone is in here, word choices in here. So the data analyst today has to have an investigative nature and be curious and understand the new tools and want to keep learning them because as this channel, particularly social media is evolving, those channels are changing all the time. So it's not a position that's one and done. It's a position where there's a constant challenge to be learned. So I would say the data analyst who's a success would be a lifelong learner and be curious and and willing to pursue. I've had a couple of real. I have to say I've had a couple of really great um, analysts on my team, and they were always willing to pursue something that just didn't look right to them. So a level of investigator has to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. I hear you. How about some challenges for these roles? I hear, you know, I'm hearing a lot of really positive things. And I know because I was in these roles, um, what might be one or two challenges uh, in this data reporting role? Um, first of all, I think one of the challenges is that um, 
consumer relations, consumer affairs, consumer services, whatever your organization is called, is often not thought of as a technical department because they think of the department as primarily agents, which are in many cases relatively um, inexperienced. It's a good beginner career. It's a good starting career. So I think the whole department um, level of skills and experience and knowledge sometimes all gets lumped in at that lower level. And as I said, the data analyst is not a lower level job in consumer affairs. It's a person that needs to have some experience and some pretty significant skills. The, the second challenge I think that the data analysts today have is the diversity of audiences um, for their work. In starting out, it used to be that the data analyst just had to look at complaints and say, here's a complaint, here's the problem, take it over to, to uh, production and, and let them know. Today, the data analyst is talking to marketing, they're talking to product innovation, they're talking to quality people, they're talking to plant management, they're talking even at the, at the C-suite level to uh, address issues that repeatedly come up. So I, I think that the data analyst today has a much more diverse audience than they did in the past. Agreed, totally. Uh, which makes the, it makes the role so interesting. Um, it is. In, in it's my, one of the best yeah. jobs to have. <laughs> it really is one of the best jobs. Let's talk a little bit about you personally. Um, okay. So you're known in the industry as someone who is a beloved mentor. Were you always mentoring folks or kids in high school? Um, or is that something you really had to work at? Give me a little background on Marie and mentoring. Well, my, I, I'm the oldest, so that automatically I'll say no more <laughs> younger siblings and I'm a little bossy, but, um, I, wanted to be a teacher. And I, um, I pursued that my undergrad is in teaching. Um, but at the time that I graduated from college, I couldn't get a job teaching because they were cutting back on teaching the teaching profession. So schools were consolidating teachers. Um, while I was in college, I had the good fortune to work for a grocery chain. And um, just about the time I was getting ready to leave college, um, the opportunity came up for me to be a trainer for that company. And I already was informally the trainer for my store. Um, and they would send new cashiers over to work with me. But um, the, I got an opportunity to go to the corporate office and actually be a real trainer for the company. I developed a, a curriculum for training cashiers and for training retail people. And um, that sort of launched my professional career as a trainer. And then I went over to work for a software company where I trained thousands of individuals for all of these different platforms that we um, used to put together for them. So I've, I've always had that trainer inside of me. And I think it carries over to being a mentor because if your teaching is your profession, I think it helps you understand the things that people are doing. And when they come to you with an issue, you can be a good mentor to them because you look at it through the lens of an educator. Um, and I, I also always had good mentors. I had people who gave me a chance. They would say, well, you think this is an idea? Okay, here's three weeks to, to show us, you know, or come back to us in a month when you've got this fleshed out. And I think that good mentors give people an opportunity. Love that. Love that. All right. I always ask everybody, all three episodes here. Uh -huh. Do you have um, two questions? And the first one is, is there a volunteer group that you'd like to give a shout out to? Maybe it's a group that you volunteered at before or you support perhaps in other ways. 
Um, well, I'm sort of a joiner, so I do join and share and support a lot of the local charities in my area. And in, when I lived in California and was working for Gallo, of course, I supported my commu- my women's club community organization there, and we did a lot of things. But the organization I really wanted to bring up to this particular audience is SOCAP, the Society of Consumer Affairs Professionals. Um, I have been a member since the 90s, and I have learned so many things because it's it's an organization where colleagues share best practices and ideas and suggestions with each other in a very free free way. And um, it's because we all have the same consumers. The person who's buying my product today is buying your product tomorrow. And so essentially, we're constantly raising the bar for each other. So I, I continued to volunteer for SOCAP and be in, involved in that. And then even as my um, career changed, I took some board positions and I was an officer in my chapter and so forth. And so I've always um, felt that that was a good way to teach the next generation, but also to share best practices, which is, is mentoring in itself. We always think about, we always talk about the words best practices, but best practices in itself is mentoring. You have a good example. That was the genesis of the data reporting workshop. A lot of us would get together and talk about how we reported on XYZ kind of problem, like a a, a broken tooth or a dental claim or something. We would get together and we would all share how we would report on it. And that was the beginning of how the data reporting workshop was born, because we were all mentoring each other very informally. We thought there was a better way to do it formally. So that was how that got started. Got it. Do you want to... Share the contact information while we're here. It's okay, SOCAP International, and it's www.socap.org. It's an association for anyone who is involved in the consumer affairs industry, whether you are a supplier to the industry of software or hardware, or whether you are an agent, a supervisor, a data reporting analyst, a manager, anyone like that. There's so many good ways that your career can be enhanced by it. In fact, my career, my last two jobs have come because I was a member of SOCAP, because um, the job that I had at Gallo, uh, the person who was retiring tapped me to come and work work and take her job when she was getting ready to retire. And I had met her through SOCAP and knew her through SOCAP. And we understood each other. So that was the way I got that position. Um, And I think that is a really an undersung value of associations is the networking that happens within those associations. Yeah. And, and full disclosure, I'm a member as well of SOCAP. Um, it doesn't have to be SOCAP, um, although I would encourage you to look into that. But any, as you were saying, like professional industry group that um, is there to help you learn and grow and, uh, you know, share you know, one of the things about being in an association, too, and and even doing other kinds of community work or, or um, you know, charitable work or anything, is that you build relationships and you never know where those relationships are going to go. Um, and I'm not saying that you're only in the organization for the relationship, but I've got friends from various rela- from various organizations I've participated in that I've known for decades and that are still my friends. We've you know, built a firm foundation, just like you and I, for that matter. Um, we've mm-hmm. been together for over 20 years because of SOCAP. And I, I think that those kinds of relationships add a dimension of interest and value to, to our lives. Is there a book or a movie that has inspired you or keeps you motivated that you find yourself going back to perhaps? 
Well, I am an avid reader, so I read a lot of things in business books as well as all kinds of other books. But um, about probably over 20 years ago now, my cousin referred me to a book called The Seven Summits. And The Seven Summits has been my go-to book whenever I have to have a gigantic um, challenge ahead of me. Uh, the Seven Summits is about how some businessmen and, and hobbyist climbers climb the um, seven highest mountains on the seven continents. And what I found fascinating was, one, that they had this huge, um, big, hairy goal that was just, you know, almost insurmountable, but also the preparation and the, the way they addressed everything that came up. They never, they never said, oh, well, this is too big of a challenge or an obstacle to, we should just change our goal. They never deterred from it. They found ways to get around those obstacles or ways to deal with those obstacles. And um, so that for me has always been a, been a go-to book. Um, but I also have another book that I, that I, I've been reading that book. Probably, I probably read that book five times and I've given it to all of the graduates that I, that I get invited to their graduation. It's always in my book bag um, is to, to high school and college graduates. The, the other book that I want to refer to is a newer book in my arsenal. And that is a book called the barefoot story. And um, the authors of that book, Michael Houlihan and Bonnie Harvey, are the founders of Barefoot Wine. And they have a very interesting and unique story um, in that the way they went about building their business. Barefoot, of course, is part of Gallo's portfolio today, and it's the largest wine brand in the world. But the reason that I chose, I find that book fascinating, and the reason that I refer people to that book is because throughout it, they listen to their customers and their consumers. And they took advice from other people. So I think it shows a really great um, example of using feedback from your customers, feedback from your consumers, advice from experts, and building, using that and leveraging it to build something that you want. And I, I love that aspect of it. So I strongly re recommend The Barefoot Story. So I'm going to have to get that one. Um, okay. Well, there's so much that I'd love to talk further with you, um, but we are kind of running out of time. Um, so maybe we can, I can have you back to talk about anything you want to talk about, but in particular, <laughs> perhaps we can explore, you know, one of the other things you're known for, which is your innovation and your creativity uh, when it comes to consumer care, um, among, other, among other things. So um, I'd love to have you back at some time. How does that I, would I would love to come back. One of the things that I would love to talk about is simply the changing roles in the consumer affairs business. You know, it's there's so many ways in which this type of activity can be divided into career paths. There's so many ways that products and not just products, but also so many service pieces that can be addressed. I'd love to talk about that in another opportunity. Great. Okay, I'm sold. Thank you so much again, Marie, uh, for taking time out of your busy day to chat with me. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. If you've learned even a kernel of an idea or was inspired by this episode, as I was, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast and maybe even tell one of your colleagues to listen in. And also be sure to share out the hashtag CPGCX because CPGCX really and truly rocks. Ciao. You have been listening to the My Curious Colleague podcast with Denise Veneri. Thank you for your time.